Well, what a year it's been for us together as a church here at Sanctus. It's been uh, a little over a year of like fairly normal life being back together. It's been a great year here at Sanctus uh, of like rebuilding. Our theme for the year uh, has been foundations. Since September, we've been talking about that in different ways. Pastor John has been leading us through some books of the Bible talking about these things. And we've been kind of rebuilding after a very unexpected and very difficult two or three years. I remember when I was young adults pastor, I was leading a, a team of volunteers. And in young adults, you're always rebuilding, no, no matter what, because young adults just by nature are very transient. You build around a group of people and then they get married or they move away or they get a new job. So you're always in this state of rebuilding. And I was trying to encourage my team one night when we were meeting years ago, that condo, that apartment building on Bailey Street, right over there at Harwood, at that time, <clears throat> it was just this kind of hole in the ground. And it was a hole in the ground for what felt like a year, two years, I don't know. But every time I would drive by, it looked like nothing was happening. I'd kind of peek through as I was driving, and you just see just this hole in the earth. And every day you'd go by, you'd see no tangible progress. And then I remember one day driving by and just this building is up in the air and all of a sudden it looks like there's like they're just adding a, a level each day. It's just getting higher and higher. Every single day you drive by, you're seeing tangible progress. And I was encouraging those leaders like this is the work of rebuilding. They spent so much time working on the foundation of that structure, making sure it was sound, making sure it was strong so that they could build a tall building on top of it. But to the naked eye, to the average person driving by, it just literally looked like nothing was happening for the longest time. And then all of a sudden, you look up and there's this building in the sky. And you've seen these buildings been constructed before. Once they kind of get above the ground level, the building just kind of seems to come up very quickly after that point, and soon there are people living inside it. I think that's kind of what the last little while of rebuilding our church has felt like, at least to me, I think, in some ways that there's been so much work being done and so much rebuilding and, and repairing and not all of it is visible to, to the average person or even visible to us. I think there'll be lots of things that we see you know, when we meet Jesus that we don't even see now. But this work of rebuilding is often kind of hidden and under the surface. And then you see glimpses of the new thing. I mean, to me, that was like what Palm Saturday was. It was like, Wow, like all this work that we've been doing, I don't just mean us as staff, I mean us collectively as the church, all this work that we've been doing to just kind of kind of try to come back together and rebuild what we have or used to have and, and start building the new thing God has called us to, we get to see like a glimpse of the building going up into the air, like so to speak, to use that analogy. It's like, oh man, there's a lot of us, and oh, you're still here, you're still here, and we get to worship Jesus together. When we rebuild, a lot of it is unseen and difficult, and they get glimpses of hope and glimpses of progress. That's a little bit about what uh, our new sermon series is about. We're starting today in the book of Ezra. Now, I don't know about you, but um, I, Ezra's not my favorite book. If I, if, I, if I were to pull the whole church, top five favorite books in the Bible, I'm willing to bet that zero people will have Ezra in their top five favorite books. I mean, I'll challenge you right now. Can you find the book of Ezra in your Bible without using the table of contents or the version scroll? <laughs> Can you find it? You know where it is? I mean, it's, it's not the most popular book in the Bible, but it's one of kind of the most important books 
in the Old Testament, it tells a very important piece of the story. And to sum it up in one, one sentence, it's the story of how God keeps his promises even when it looks like it's over. And that will speak to us today. We believe God has given our church promises. And we've been saying throughout the pandemic, even in the darkest moments, even when we're all in our own living rooms or bedrooms doing church together, God has not forgotten his promises. He hasn't changed his mind just because there was a pandemic that came up. No, God keeps his promises even when it looks like it's over. I told you recently a couple things about myself. I love woodworking, but I hate sanding. And I'd just like to say to all the people who have asked me for help with their sanding projects, the answer is going to be no. I'd love to help you, but I don't want to. I also told you that I love road trips, but not for 24 hours with a one-year-old. Just not really my thing. Probably the only other thing you need to know about me is that I love baseball, and I love the Blue Jays. And uh, one of the things that I really love is kind of the business of the game and, and the behind the scenes and how teams make decisions and how they build their teams. And in the last probably 10 years or so, in, in multiple different sports, the word rebuilding has kind of become a buzzword. And there's this other kind of more extreme version called tanking, where teams will intentionally not try to be great so that they can get higher picks in the draft and they can build their team through the farm system. I mean, they look at their, their competitors and they see that they're not really in contention anyway. So rather than go out and spend all this money on free agents, let's take our time, let's rebuild the team, and then we can have a sustainable competitor down the road. So fans have to live through this like darkness for multiple years. So in 2015, 2016, I'm sure you remember, the Blue Jays went on this amazing postseason run deep into the postseason both years. I think we should have won in 2015. But, you know, we were all watching those games, at least I was, with this kind of lurking fear in my mind, like, okay, this is amazing. We better win this year because our stars are getting older. Bautista, Edwin, Tulo, they're not going to be around much longer, and we're going to have to go through some sort of a rebuild if we want to be contenders again later. So that's what happened. We, we didn't make the World Series in 15 and 16, and then 17, 18, 19. Oh, that was terrible. We were so bad those years. But you know what? I'll give the guys credit over there at the Blue Jays. They drafted Bo and they had Vlad, and they built this amazing team. And it took a while, but they, they rebuilt it to what it is today. And we got a pretty good team today. I, I think we have a chance to go deep in the playoffs again this year. You know, there's some teams like the Tigers, they're just rebuilding forever. It doesn't really ever work. But it is beautiful, I think, when you, t you, you go along the journey with the team and you go right into the depths of those 100 lost seasons. You keep watching. You keep sticking with it. And then it just kind of hits different when you get to see your team win after a hard rebuild. That's a little bit about like what the story of Israel is in the book of Ezra. They have been through some unbelievably hard times. I mean, the Old Testament in general, I'm going to show you here in a second, it's, it's like kind of a gong show. Like, it's, it's a real mess. But when we get to Ezra, they're really at the lowest point of their entire history. And God is present still. And God is still keeping his promises. And God is still showing up and showing himself faithful, even in his people's lowest moment. So here's what I want to do as uh, we start this brand new sermon series today. I've kind of got two objectives. Number one, we're going to walk through Ezra chapter 1, as we would normally do. 
but I also want to kind of lay the groundwork for the entire series. And because Ezra is not the most notable book in the Bible, and you might not even be able to find it without a table of contents, I think it would be well worth our time for the next few weeks as well to just kind of pause before we get into the first chapter and make sure we know where we are in the Bible and in the story and we know what's really going on. So I'm going to throw up this image on the screens. I didn't create this, but I found it. There's a source at the bottom there. I want to walk us through. Don't worry about the small text in the boxes. That's kind of for further study later. We can get this picture to you for your connect groups if you want to go deeper. But let me just kind of walk you through it. Okay, so at the very end where you see the arrow, above that is Ezra and Nehemiah. That's kind of where we are in this, in this series today. This is where we're starting. The book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, they actually used to be kind of one book. They're telling a similar story, and, and we'll get into that in a few minutes. But that's kind of the end. That's where we're starting. And one of the reasons the Old Testament can be confusing is because Ezra happens kind of after 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and it happens like before the Psalms, but it's chronologically like the last thing to take place in the Old Testament story. So that's another reason why it can trip us up sometimes. But let's just take a quick look through the Old Testament. This is the story of God's people. So God creates the heavens and the earth. A little while after that, he calls a guy named Abram, changes his name to Abraham, and he starts the whole story off with a promise that we call a covenant. And he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And through his offspring, the nation of Israel is born. They wind up in Egypt. They're in captivity and slavery for what ends up being 400 years. God sends his servant Moses, and God delivers his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, and takes them into the promised land. Now, they have a little blip on the radar there for about 40 years that was unscheduled and not easy. <clears throat> but right when Moses dies, Joshua takes over and he leads the people of Israel into the promised land. Now, the land is very important. It's connected to the blessing of God. Keep that in mind as we get going because it's going to be very important. So there's a period of judges, and they have no leader, and it's kind of a mess, and people want a king. So Saul comes on the scene. He's not a very good king, and then David comes. And under David and Solomon, his son's rule, Israel is at like its peak moment. They're doing the best they've ever done. They're in the golden age. But after Solomon passes away, the kingdom literally splits in two, and there's about ten fairly unfaithful tribes that make up the northern kingdom called Israel, and then there's two fairly faithful tribes, Benjamin and Judah, that make up the southern kingdom called Judah. Different governments, different operations. There's separate and divided kingdoms. And what happens after that is really not pretty and not good. The first one to fall is the northern kingdom of Israel. And in around 721, they're carried off into Assyria. They're destroyed. They're exiled. They're taken away. Assyria is north of where they were. They were carried off into exile. Now, the southern kingdom of Judah does a bit better, but it's still not very good. And then what happens is they are taken off in the year around 605. Babylon comes in. King Nebuchadnezzar comes in. He destroys Jerusalem. He destroys the walls. He destroys the temple that Solomon built. And he carries off the people into exile in Babylon, east of Israel. They're taken away from the promised land. Now, this is so critical. And this is where we find the story beginning. The people have been in exile in Babylon for 70 years. They've been separated for their home. They've been separated from the Holy Land, from the temple, from their entire culture. And as the story begins here in Ezra chapter 1, 
King Cyrus, who is the leader over the Persian Empire, he's just defeated Babylon, and he is now the leader in charge of the exiles in Babylon. So I know that was some heavy lifting, but that's where we are in the story. So much has transpired in biblical history by the time we get to this point, and this is where we find the beginning of the story in Ezra. So let's read the first verse together. Ezra 1, verse 1 says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, there's so, there's so much that's interesting here in this first half, half verse. I mean, we, know, we just said that Persia has taken over Babylon, and Babylon has now fallen, and King Cyrus is now the one in charge. And this is exactly what would happen. They've been, in, they've been in captivity now for 70 years. They've been taken away from their promised land. And that's exactly what God told them would happen if they continued to disobey. This is what God said right on the brink of entering the promised land in the first time when they came out of Egypt. They were in the wilderness. And right before Moses died in the book of Deuteronomy, this is what God says to his people. So you can't blame God for being like mean or, or changing the rules. Like hundreds and hundreds of years ago, he set out the expectations very clearly. Deuteronomy 30, right before they go in. I command you today, love the Lord your God. Walk in obedience to him and keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase and the Lord will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. So this is a promise of blessing, and all they're asked to do is love God. Don't love the neighboring gods. Don't love gods from other cultures. Just love God. That's it. If you do that, you will be crazy blessed, and the land you'll get to keep. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. And if you read the Old Testament, because we're talking about centuries of history here, I mean, it was centuries of sin, warnings, and grace. I mean, I think a lot of people have this idea in their minds that the Old Testament God is this vengeful, quick-tempered, wrathful God, and, you know, the, the Jesus of the New Testament is some chill guy. They're totally different. I mean, nothing could be further from the truth. Like, God in the Old Testament demonstrates more grace and patience than our human brains could possibly imagine. We just kind of read it in, you know, in hindsight. We read it quickly. But we're talking about not just days or months or years of grace and warning and forgiveness, but centuries. And then finally, after so much grace, exactly what he said would happen if they disobeyed happened. I mean... Listen to this bone-chilling account of Nebuchadnezzar coming in and taking the Israelites away. It's a bit long, but I think it's important as we begin this series. 2 Kings 25. On the seventh day of the fifth month in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, his commander of the imperial guard, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the temple Solomon built, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem he set fire to. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army under the commander, they took down and broke down the walls around Jerusalem. The commander of the guard carried into exile the people who remained in the city along with the rest of the populace and those who had deserted to the king of Babylon. 
But the commander left behind some of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and fields. The Babylonians broke up the bronze pillars, the movable stands, and the bronze sea that were at the temple of the Lord, and they carried the bronze to Babylon. And they took away the pots, shovels, wick trimmers, dishes, all the bronze articles used in the temple service. I mean, they took everything. They took all the, 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 the sacred artifacts right out of the temple, to, like defiling the temple. They burned it down. They burned all the houses, all the cultural centers, all the important buildings. They just completely destroyed God's land, God's holy land that he gave as a blessing to his people. They came in and they destroyed it under Nebuchadnezzar. And then they took all the people except the poorest of the poor just to keep the most basic elements of the economy going. And they took them all and they took them to Babylon. And that's where they were for 70 years. 70 years. I mean, I, to me, that to me is the lowest point in the entire story of the Bible. I mean, you could, you could make an argument that 400 years as slaves in Egypt was pretty low, pretty bad. But to have the promised land and to be blessed with it, and to know what it's like, and to develop a culture and history, and then to have that taken away from you. This is the lowest point in all of biblical history. Now, amazingly, 70 years earlier, so as the exile is happening, 70 years before the book of Ezra takes place, Jeremiah was on the scene as a prophet, and he actually prophesied as they were leaving, he prophesied, that they would return 70 years later. Listen to these words. And you'll hear in these words one of the most famous verses in the entire Bible and one of the most encouraging, coming at the darkest moment in biblical history. This is what the Lord says from Jeremiah. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. I mean, what a promise right there. In the midst of exile, while the temple is burning and their houses have been burned down, they're being carried off to a foreign land, how merciful and good, even in the midst of this consequence, is God that he would give this promise at this moment. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and you will come to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. What beautiful words in the midst of chaos and tragedy and devastation. I mean, we see the grand storyline of the entire Bible on full display. God is on relentless mission to restore and redeem his people and the entire world. And nothing is going to stop him from doing that. Now, there is consequences to our sin. And when God sets out his covenant, there's a covenant of blessing and covenant of consequence. If you follow me, you will be blessed. If you follow off other gods and you don't follow me, there will be consequences. But that does not change God's ultimate promise that he is coming to redeem and restore and make all things new. And nothing's going to stand in his way of doing that. One of the themes of this first chapter and the book of Ezra is that no matter what's happening around us, no matter what the circumstances are, God is always in complete control. And he never breaks his promises, no matter how bad things get. 
this first verse says a, a few interesting things. And one of the most interesting things, it says the Lord moved the heart of King Cyrus. Now, I think this is pretty remarkable because by all accounts, Cyrus is not a follower of God. At least he's certainly not an Israelite. I mean, this guy was like a warlord. He defeated Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon and at that point in history led as the king of the largest empire in the history of the world. This guy is a, like a pagan king. And the Bible declares that God moved his heart. I mean, how could God use King Cyrus for his kingdom purposes? That, that's very interesting. I mean, we can ask another question, a, a different one. Why is that verse even in the Bible? Why, why does the author go to that length to say that God moved Cyrus's heart? Well, I think the Bible is trying to make a very significant point. And that is, God is not just the God of Israel. He is not just that nation's lowercase g, God. He is the God over the entire earth. And every ruler and leader and authority comes under Him. He is the God of the cosmos. He's the God of the universe. And if this is true, this really matters both to them in their circumstance and to us in our lives. Because so much of the time, it seems like God is not in control. Whether that's in our lives, in politics, in the world, or what Israel is dealing with as they're being exiled off into Babylon. Does that look like a God who's in control of His people? Oh, but He's in complete control. Even to the point where Jeremiah prophesied the exact number of years that they would be in Babylon. He said 70 years earlier that it would be 70 years while they were there. And then God would bring them back. He's always working it out. He's always in control. And so because God moves the heart of Cyrus at God's bidding and his invitation, God did this. Cyrus issues a decree to his entire empire about the exiled Israelites living among them. Listen to what he says in verse 2. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. This is the proclamation. The Lord, the God of heaven, wow, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, wow, and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Okay, that's very interesting. <laughs> Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. I mean, you may have noticed from my chuckling there, but isn't it insane that Cyrus like explicitly calls God the Lord? He ascribes lordship to God. And he calls him the God of heaven. And he even credits God for giving him military success and rule over his empire. I mean, that, that'll keep theologians busy for a while. I don't have a quick and easy answer for you on that. But I think it's so interesting. And it just, I, I think the pastoral takeaway from that is even when the most powerful person in the entire world, he is under God. And God decides what happens. I mean, we just read in Romans 13, right, that there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that have existed have been established by God. Now, that doesn't mean that God agrees with everything that they do, but it does mean that they come under submission to God, whether they know it or like it or not. God is God overall. Cyrus must have had, I think, some sort of encounter with God. 
I mean, the Bible is obviously silent on this, but for him to have this deep of a conviction, for someone who did not grow up in the Israelite tradition, I think God must have like really shown up and, and drawn near to Cyrus. I don't know if he woke him up in the middle of the night. I don't know if he was seeking other gods and God showed up. But Cyrus knows who God is. He knows who Yahweh is. And he knows that God has told him, given him specific instructions to release his people to go back. And he considers it his responsibility, basically, to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Maybe Cyrus even came to believe in God and God alone. I don't know. But regardless, God does what he needs to do. And he moves who he needs to move to let his promises come to pass. God moves who he needs to move. There is no obstacle too big for God. Even the greatest king, the largest empire in the world, God can move his heart too. So Cyrus instructs him to rebuild the temple as God commanded, and he instructs everyone else to give them offerings as they go. This is like a second exodus. Like when the Israelites left captivity in Egypt, they also took plunder from the Egyptians. It says in Exodus 12, the Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and clothing. And the Lord, again, God is behind this stuff. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people and they gave them what they asked for and they plundered the Egyptians. Now, two things are happening here. I mean, number one, it's, it's one thing to be free to go back. That's really good. They're free. They're not exiles anymore. But without materials, they won't be able to rebuild anything. So that's why in his proclamation, it says these free will offerings are for the temple of God in Jerusalem. But even deeper, it's happening so that there w would be no doubt that the God of Israel is the God of the whole earth and that he's the one behind this. Cyrus isn't just being nice. It's God who is sovereignly ordaining this. And just like that, at one word from the Lord, one encounter with the right person, and God's people get to go home to their holy land after 70 years. Ezra 1 verse 5, Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites and everyone whose God, heart God had moved, there it is again, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. It's God doing it. Sorry to repeat myself, but this is the theme of the chapter. Everyone whose heart God moved. So the two heads of the tribes go, the heads of the two tribes rather, the, the priests and the Levites go, and everyone who God prompted to go went. Now scholars estimate there was about 50,000 people who went back in this trip. Now this is the first of three trips. This is going to get a little confusing. Ezra leads the second group, and even though the book is named Ezra, this happens like decades and decades later. So in Ezra chapter 1, the guy named Ezra, he's not even on the scene yet. <laughs> so the first group of three, this one that we're talking about, is being led back by a guy named Zerubbabel, and he takes about 50,000 people back with him to start the rebuilding. There's different phases. There's three different groups, Pastor John and others. They're going to get into all that in the rest of the series. Nehemiah comes, and he takes the third group. But in this first group that's going right now in chapter 1, about 50,000 people are going. Now this pales in comparison to the number of people who were exiled out of Israel. We'll get to that in a minute. But they're free to go back. God prompted many people to go. The rest of the chapter, I'm not going to read it because we're running out of time, but it just makes these three simple points. You can read it on your own time or with your connect group. It just says, 
In verse 6, their Babylonian neighbors did what Cyrus said, and they provided the Israelites with silver and gold. They left with, it says at the end of the chapter, like 5,400 articles of gold and silver to rebuild the temple. Cyrus himself, this again is amazing, he went in and he retrieved the sacred articles of the Jerusalem temple that Nebuchadnezzar himself took away 70 years earlier. He carried them out, and he personally saw to it that they were returned to the temple of Israel. Amazing. And they left with Babylonian plunder and all the materials they need to rebuild. They went back to Jerusalem. And as we'll see in the rest of the series, it was no straight line getting the temple walls and city rebuilt. But they did it. And it's significant that they did. Because 400 years after that, Jesus came. And he walked in those very courtyards. And he preached the gospel in that very area. And of course we know he was taken to the cross outside the city. See, there's an interesting parallel, I think, between Jesus and Cyrus. On one hand, you know, there's no comparison, and we have to be very careful comparing like a pagan king warlord to Jesus, because Jesus is incomparable to anyone. But after we establish that, you know, basic truth, consider this. Cyrus defeated the great enemy of Israel, the ones who forced them into captivity and took them away from the land of God's blessing. Cyrus defeated Babylon, and after he did that, he invited God's people to be free and return to the land that God gave them, to return to God's peace and blessing. And Jesus, in this like much greater, deeper sense, Jesus defeated the ultimate enemy of everything, sin and death, even darkness itself, Jesus defeated our greatest enemy on the cross. And then he rose three days later. And in saving us from our greatest enemy, he invites not just a few people to go home. Jesus invites the entire world to come back to him and to come back to the Father. And Jesus is the great culmination of the entire Old Testament story. That image that I showed you with, with all that history and all those ups and downs, all that chaos and tragedy, it's all leading to Jesus because it's all saying one thing. It's saying that we cannot do this on our own. We cannot. God says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and do not go and drift away to other gods. And the Old Testament proves that without Jesus and without his Holy Spirit, it can't be done. It can't be done. And because God is relentlessly on pursuit, on mission to redeem and restore and reconnect his people with him, he knows that if he doesn't send his own son into the world, this cycle will just be perpetual forever. There will be bright spots and there will be outstanding leaders, but ultimately it's going to end in chaos and tragedy again and again and again. So what does he do? He sends his very own son into the world to take on chaos and tragedy upon himself. And he takes on all of the consequences of the sin of the entire world. He bears it on himself as a sinless sacrifice, the very son of God in human flesh. And in doing so, defeats chaos and tragedy. He defeats sin, death, and darkness. And then he becomes truly, not becomes, then he is Lord of the entire world. And he invites the entire world to come in and have relationship and restoration and to truly be rebuilt and reborn in him.
That's the story of the Old Testament. From the darkest moment to the brightest morning, that Easter Sunday morning when Jesus rose from the dead. God on pursuit, on mission with his people, never giving up, never breaking his promises. So in these last few minutes, we just ask the question we always ask. What is God saying to us in this random book of the Bible? We don't always say the word random. But what's God saying to us in the book of Ezra? Well, once again, the main point is this. God never breaks his promises, no matter how bad things get. It's the story of Ezra. It's the story of the entire Bible. It's our story too, by the way. I mean, these last few years, like we've said, they've, they've been hard. There have been moments where I've wondered. There's been moments when we've looked around and said, like, what's happening here? This is not what it used to be. But we were reminding you, and we were reminding ourselves, and I think the Holy Spirit was reminding us during the pandemic, that God gave promises to our church. You can choose to believe that if you want, but we, we feel that years ago, God gave promises to our church. One of them was that He has asked us to be a church of 10,000, meeting the emotional, physical, and spiritual needs of people in Jesus' name. And I'll tell you what, I mean, for me as well, there were moments during the pandemic where that looked like maybe that wasn't going to happen. He's given us other promises too. 2 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5, and Zechariah 8. I don't have time to go into all of them. Pastor John has preached on these before. But I do want to zero in on Zechariah 8. Because this promise was given to the Israelites during the rebuilding period. And it's something that the Lord keeps bringing back onto our radar. So the whole chapter is what we feel like God's given to us. But I'm just going to touch on a few verses. I can't read the whole thing. Please read it on your own. But listen to this. This was given to the Israelites while they are rebuilding. And it's been given to us even in these last few years as we've been rebuilding. So this is what the Lord says. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called Faithful City, and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called Holy Mountain. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each of them with cane in hand because of their age. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. I will save my people from the countries of the east and the west. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem, and they will be my people. And I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. In those days, ten people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you, because we have heard that God is with you. What a, what a promise, what an invitation, what a prompting that we've felt from the Lord for our church. I mean, here where it's given... Ezra, Zechariah, the entire rebuilding process in the Old Testament is rooted in the promises of God. And for us here at Sanctus, what we do has to be rooted in the promises of God as well. I'm not talking about making an idol out of the 10,000 and overemphasizing it. That's not what we should do. But the promises of God in Scripture, namely like the big ones, that He will bless us as we seek Him and we follow Him and we love Him and Him alone that He will provide for our needs, that He will never leave us or forsake us, and that He never breaks His promises. So the question really is, did God really give us these instructions, these promises, or didn't He? Because if He did, we have to have faith to believe that He is working it out, even when it doesn't look like it's happening, even when it looks like it's over. 
God is still working. God is still working even when it looks like it's over. And what did the people do in response to this? They got up, they gave, and they got to work. Not all of them, by the way. 50,000 people went back, and millions of people were exiled into Babylon. And in 70 years, only 50,000 people came back, started from scratch. Now, there were people that were still there, as it says, the poorest of the poor. But not everybody came back. Not everybody got back to work rebuilding. There's a choice for each one of us, even here at Sanctus. Are we going to be part of the rebuilding process? Are we going to get to work? Are we going to give? Are we going to participate? Are we going to pitch in to help get the work done? There's a lot of work to be done. We're not done rebuilding. We're right in the middle of it. And there's an invitation here for us to participate or not. As I end here, I'll just ask you this. What about you? What about me? What promises are you waiting on? Now, you know why the Lord gave us promises to our church? I mean, on one hand, He's sovereign. He can do whatever He wants. We didn't twist His arm. He spoke. But one of the reasons He spoke is because we took time to ask. And I think a lot of people, maybe even a lot of churches, maybe don't do that. So in our personal lives, have you taken the time to ask God if He has something significant and specific for you? I mean, we have to, we have to test all of the promptings that we feel from God, but I wonder if there's something that God wants to speak into your life to encourage you. I wonder if there's a promise He wants to give you. I wonder if He wants to remind you of some promises in Scripture to lift your eyes and to give you hope and to let you keep going. Maybe you're rebuilding your life. Forget rebuilding the church. You're more concerned about rebuilding your life right now. Maybe you're still in that kind of 70 years of exile, dark, in between. If I could just encourage you, wherever you're at, if God can move a pagan king's heart, and if God can bring his people back after 70 years of exile, after all the disobedience and all the obstacles that came, and even go as far as to move Cyrus's heart to do his bidding for him, I mean, what else can God do? What can't God do? So we have to trust him. We have to wait on him. We have to pray and to continue seeking him. After 400 years in Egypt, God rescued after 70 years in exile, God rescued. After 400 years of silence, God rescued by sending His very Son, Jesus, into the world to end this cycle of sin and chaos and give us life and life to the full, hope and a future. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Jesus Christ, we love you and praise you and thank you. We thank you for coming into the world. We thank you, God, that you sent your son as the culmination of this Old Testament story that was so difficult and crooked. You drew a straight line out of a crooked story. And we thank you, Lord, that you never gave up on us. Pray that you would help us to believe in you, help us to have faith that you will do what you promised. And as for Sanctus Church, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to continue rebuilding. We pray that you would help us to cling to the promises you've given to us. Forget the numbers. We just pray for more of you, God. We pray for more of your Holy Spirit. We pray for renewal, revival, and awakening. We pray these words of Zechariah 8 over our church. Yes and amen. 
we pray, come Lord Jesus, let our hands be strong, and may you receive all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.